Greetings, this is David Thompson coming to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, Canada. Are you thirsty for reality? Only reality can satisfy the inner core of your being. And if you are thirsty for reality, you have come to the right place. I'm only interested in speaking to you out of the Spirit of God those words that God wants you to receive as an individual and also to those corporately as the body of Christ. We are commanded to speak as the oracles of God as stated in 1 Peter 4.11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we're to seek to speak not our own words, but God's words out of the Spirit of God. So in this regards, I therefore also will seek to have God lead me to a particular chapter of the Bible each day, which is often found by the casting of lots before God. I then will meditate on this chapter for a half an hour and also take some brief notes and then immediately after preach from this passage as I'm about to do now to you. I trust the Spirit of God to give me the words to speak, not to prepare an outline. This is in order to bring forth and prepare people individually and corporately for their ultimate, everlasting, and ever-enlarging fulfillment for which they were created, and for which all creation exists, namely the marriage of the Almighty's one true God to his corporate bride that will conquer all corruption and go on forever and ever in an ever-increasing government of ever-enlarging expression of creative love. I will now read the full chapter of Luke 14. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go, and answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Then said he also to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors. 
lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go up quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor and the maimed, and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned. It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but man cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In this passage of Scripture, there is a congruity throughout it, an overall arching theme. All of these events are really connected together. And I will bring that out in what I share. I have divided this into five sections, this chapter. The first section 
verses 1 to 6. The exposed hypocrisy of mere performance to please God by the keeping of his commandments rather than genuinely loving God. Christ exposes this hypocrisy. People seeking to please God out of mere performance of keeping his commandments. Was God's intention when he gave the Ten Commandments that they would merely perform the keeping of the commandments without their heart loving God? It is very clear that that's not the case because the context often of God commanding the children of Israel to keep the commandments of God carries with it just before the giving of that command. The command to fear God and also to love God with all our heart and with all our being. There is a deception that can take place where one can fall into the trap of mere performance with a genuine motive to please God. But falling into the trap of mere performance to please God is to fall into the trap of lukewarmness, losing one's relationship of genuinely loving God from the heart. God's intention when he gave the Ten Commandments certainly involved more than one purpose. And this is brought out in the book of Galatians and other parts of Scripture. One of the purposes was to perceive a godly seed and also a godly nation because of the t increased tendency of wickedness to creep in from the nations surrounding them that were so idolatrous that they sacrificed their own children to gods in order to enter a blessing that those gods gave or to appease these gods. They were really motivated to appease false gods or to receive blessings of material worth from false gods. Such motivations are really a pursuit of self under the guise of pleasing a counterfeit god, even if they believed in one god and that there wasn't many gods. To believe in a God that would be demanding for you to offer a precious life so that you can have material blessings or so that you can be appeased of some fears that are in your being is really a deception of grasping onto self. The focus is really on self. And with the giving of the Ten Commandments, of course, God's intention was that the children of Israel would not fall into the trap of making mere performance the focus. In other words, making the commandments an idol that they worship rather than worshiping the one that was the giver of those commandments. God's intention was that they would love him with their whole being 
out of which would spring the keeping of those commandments. But those commandments were also given to protect from the encroaching tendency of iniquity and evil to creep in to them as a nation. So thus their seed was preserved. But his intention is also that they would receive blessing in the natural by keeping these commandments, even if it was by mere performance, the keeping of such commandments would bring obviously greater civility to a nation and would result in blessing. But ultimately, to fall out of relationship with God and make the Ten Commandments or anything in our lives a mere duty of performance before God is to lose relationship with God and fall into the deception of mere religiosity. And so Christ exposes in these first five, six verses the hypocrisy that they would not want him to do good on the Sabbath day, as if there was a commandment that you could not do good or that you could not be a channel through which God's grace could flow to bring healing to someone. There was no such commandment in the Old Testament. There was commandments in the Old Testament that said such things as Exodus 23.5, that thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. A commandment to help even those you hate if you see their animal is fallen down under a heavy burden and is in a position where that person is going to lose their animal and you're in a position to help them. And that would probably, obviously, they couldn't answer Christ because they recognized they would be violating this commandment here in Exodus 23.5. And so Christ was exposing their hypocrisy of mere performance that contradicted the reality of what the Sabbath was given for. It says in the Word of God, I forget the particular chapter, but he says, I am giving you these Sabbaths that you might know that it is the Lord that sanctifies you or purifies you. That you might recognize that God is the source of your purification, which also implies sanctification and salvation in the sense of entering in to heaven, entering into a relationship of eternal life. That God is the source of that. And that source is in this understanding. Because the word Sabbath means cessation. It means cessation of our own self-initiations. That's the implication of the word cessation, which means Sabbath that we cease or that we curb our own self-initiations that are coming out of ourselves in order to grasp onto fulfilling what we perceive will fulfill us in the natural. And so the keeping of the Sabbath have the intent of curbing our own self-initiations so that we would not fall into the deception of idolatry. The deception of covetousness, which basically is 
a condition of the soul that is in a state of grasping, similar to a black hole in outer space, which draws all things into itself, seeking to fill that void that was only made to be filled by God. And so by putting aside our self-initiations, even when we come into prayer, it says in Ezekiel, or pardon me, Ecclesiastes, I believe chapter 5, the beginning, says, God is in heaven and thou on earth, therefore let thy words be few. It is a recognition of reverence before God so that we don't just come and mutter anything in presumption before God because we choose to perceive who God is by coming to a place where we humble ourselves and utter awe before God and recognize the greatness of our Creator. And I love to describe, at least in some measure, the character of God. I'm writing a book that involves very much a lot of teaching on the character of God, particularly in the context of fearing God. And I'm sure that book will be done. It's mostly done in the near future. The understanding that God is real, that he is the, it is only reality that is absolutely filled with reality and nothing less than reality that is ultimately satisfying and can fill the void that causes this self-initiation of or self-grasping or covetousness. The word of God says that covetousness is idolatry. The word that is the opposite of the word Sabbath is the word idolatry, which if you look up the various meanings of that word, and there are various shades of meaning, and I remember writing about this, but I don't remember the details, but it has the idea of carving our own image out. It has basically the understanding of our self-initiation to form our own image of the way we want God to believe God is to us, which is idolatrous because it justifies the worship of self, the grasping onto self in priority over a relationship with God. But the character of God is reality. It says in the word of God, I am that I am. That is a description of ultimate reality. In Hebrew, it goes like this, Ahiya, Asher, Ahiya. Ahiya means I am. Asher means which, and Ahiya means I am. Ahiyah asher ahiyah. The Lord is reality. And reality is a way of defining truth because the word truth, if you look it up in various dictionaries, basically is described as that which is real. So if you look up the definition of the word real, you discover that reality or real means that which is immovable, everlasting, unchangeable. God is reality. Why is God immovable, everlasting, and unchangeable? It is because there is not the slightest iota of corruption in the being of God. This state of being that would choose something less than the highest lasting good. God is love, and love is that quality that is always choosing the highest lasting good over anything that would be less 
onto the fulfillment of some more immediate gratification, for example. The ultimate demonstration of that love of God is in God's expression into the time and space realm, which is his son, for the word son means expression, the condescension of his very only one and only expression or son to humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature, so that he could absorb judgment upon himself so that you, as his creatures, could come into reconciliation to God because of choosing out of this corruptible principle in a direction that would take one totally away from the very source of love and life, which when you're cut off from, all you're left with is eternal torment in hell. This relationship with God is coming to a place of choosing to recognize God for who he is as ultimately satisfying because he is ultimately real and the reason he is ultimately real is because this love has such integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. First of all, it is that. It is coming to recognize what is ultimately trustworthy and only what can choose the highest lasting good that has that kind of love and is a blazing fire of judgment against anything that would be contrary to that love could possibly be ultimately real and ultimately trustworthy for the evidence of ultimate reality is that it is filled with what is constructive on the meaning and purpose. In other words, it is filled with life as opposed to being filled with that which is contrary to life, which is corruption, or that which is going in the direction of more and more chaos and disorder. In fact, the first law of thermodynamics, which is an observed phenomena, phenomena throughout the known universe, says that anything that le is left onto itself always goes in the direction of greater and greater disorder. And when people reject God and his provision of mercy, they are cut off from the very life source and love of God. And so there's a corrupt principle in them because they're trying to fill this black hole and they are always making choices that are destructive, that are less than onto their highest good. And so the keeping of the Sabbath was meant to be out of recognizing or choosing to fear God Recognizing that God is ultimately trustworthy, that he has, it is the focus of recognizing what is, who is, who God really is. He is certainly holy. That is the defensive aspect of his love. He requires judgment. But out of that is the foundation from which issues the power of God to be so creative to the extent, or expressive in his love in creativity to the extent that he chose to create a corporate bride and to create beings with the capacity to love, knowing that he could show mercy to them because there was the moral capacity out of this integrity of love to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. And so it only is in God that is the source of forgiveness. And that is in the fact 
that he has the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and became a perfect atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ, which is the full expression of himself in government in the time and space realm to reconcile beings he created with free will. I could get carried away and talk in a lot of detail about this, but I would fail to preach on this whole section of scripture. So I want to go on to the next section here in Luke chapter 14. From verses 7 to 11, the importance of denying the pursuit of self-reward and self-glory and rather choosing humility before God out of pursuing God's glory. In this section, Christ gives the parable of people And obviously, he was at a wedding when he gave this uh, illustration. Because he says in verse 12, Then said he also to him that bade him. So he was invited to a wedding. It could be the one where the water was turned into wine. We don't know. So he mentions this to these people. Obviously, he mentioned the other that I just shared first. Because there was probably many Pharisees at that particular meeting and others that were very performance-orientated and yet had evil in their heart because they hadn't been brought forth in you by the Spirit of God or entered into that place like many others have from the very time of Adam and Eve. That's another subject. Okay, Uh, so he's saying here basically this. When you come to a wedding, don't go and take the highest seat because what's going to happen is that probably someone more honorable will come more honorable will come than you and then you will be you will feel humiliated to take a lower seat. He's saying rather take the lower seat. So then people will give worth unto you as opposed to bringing less worth onto you. They will give greater respect to you. They will look at you as a respectful person because you are not someone that was seeking to be anything before that. It is important to recognize the danger of falling into the trap of self-reward and self-glory before others. There are people that can desire to go into the ministry simply because they have a motive of wanting people to look up to them. They get a satisfaction out of having attention, whatever it is. There are many false motives. That is why Christ said that there won't be few, but there will be many that will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out devils in your name? Haven't we prophesied? Haven't we done many wonderful works? And the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they fail to come to the recognition of who God is. When you recognize that God is holy in the sense that He is ultimately holy, that he is totally pure in the integrity of his love. You cannot help but be brought 
to the place of complete honesty in your heart before God. And when you come to that place of honesty before God, it brings you to the place of humility as well, which then feeds bringing you to a place of even greater honesty, and it works the other way. When you choose to humble yourself before God out of recognizing Him in His holiness and being in awe of that, it brings you to the place out of that humility of total honesty. Where you recognize your utter dependency on the mercy of God and you cry out like the publican and sinner, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Even if it was before the world was created, the angels recognized their utter dependency in God out of the fear of God, for they recognized they were in the midst of God's glory and before the awesome majesty of a being of such total pure love that was a blazing fire against any destructive principle. And they are in awe of that and aware out of that that they were created and had meaning and purpose. It was out of that foundation that God's creativity sprung forth and that they were given a life. And so they were filled with thankfulness that God was so good to make them have meaning and purpose and fulfillment and destiny. But now we, knowing the full manifestation of God's love so that the light is fully shining now, can keep the commandments of God as it were not only an old commandment, but now a new commandment as John the Apostle writes. And so we come to recognize that all we want is not to be seen at all. We're so mesmerized by the glory of God because he is so filled with majesty. He is the very source of ultimate trustworthiness, of, of a quality of being that can only contain unlimited power and life that is indicative that he is the very source thereof. And so out of that knowledge, that awareness, we cry out with praise, thou art worthy for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. And believe me, that worship described in the book of Revelations is a definition of the fear of God or as it says by the, or as it said in another way by the apostle Paul for in him and through him and to him are all things. That's not an intellectual assent. That is an acknowledging of God as our very life source, is the very source of, of goodness that brings a, thank, a reverence and out of that reverence a great thankfulness. So that we don't have any desire for anything of position or rank to be seen in the sight of others. All we want is the glory of God, to be filled with this love and to love those that are unlovely. And show the mercy that God has shown to us. For we recognize and we reciprocate the mercy of God out of the awareness of the greatness of his holiness or the integrity of his love to judge and contain by that judgment the glory that ever increases in creativity and enlargement in expressions of his love. So in this passage of scripture here, we find out out of this 
that Christ mentions about taking the lowest seat, that the next thing he says is in verse 12 to 14. This is showing the importance of denying expected reward and blessing before God and others by personally recognizing God's mercy and showing it to those who cannot return the favor. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest thou also bid lest they also bid thee and a recompense be made. No, he's showing, he says, this is what you need to do. You need to be filled with the mercy that I show towards you. If you recognize my goodness, if you recognize the goodness that I am shining on your life, you will want to show an unconditional goodness towards my creation that can't return it in favor because you can't return it in favor to me. Because you deserve judgment, and I have given you the privilege to be able to repent and be reconciled to me and to be filled with my blessings and goodness. And even the recognition of all the blessings that we received, we should recognize as the angels do and worship before God, as they recognize out of the fear of God that that's where they see the mercy that God shows to them that he created them and has given them being and blessing and wholeness. The original sin of Lucifer was a failure to fear God that at that moment meant that he no longer recognized God as ultimately trustworthy and that caused an emptiness in his inner being for it is only in God that is the source of completeness. And it is only in that completeness that there is true satisfaction. But when that is not perceived, as Satan fell, there was a vacuum in his being and he started to grasp to try to fill it by thinking that he could be like the Most High. And the more he grasped, the more it became like a ra ravenous black hole sucking and pulling everything in around it into destruction and rebellion against God. And so the greatest and most dangerous sin is the sin of pride, which is the opposite of the fear of God. And we always must learn the secret of abiding in God. And that secret is in the fear of God, which is choosing to recognize, not merely intellectually, but far more from the heart with a deep turning in the heart, the holiness of God and worshiping him and the mercy of God that springs out of that holiness in goodness to us and worshiping him. So God is calling his people to come to a place of always learning the secret of abiding in him. For the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and to them will he show his covenant and his salvation, it says in other verses. He delivers those that fear him. And of course, it says in Isaiah I believe 33, around verse 5 or 6, concerning the Messiah, the context is talking about the Messiah. It says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. So in the very triunity of God himself, the oneness of the one true God, in three dimensions of government, of personage, that oneness, which is bonded together in reciprocation of faith that works by love, 
has its foundation in the fear of God, for that is the secret of abiding in relationship with God, within even the triunity of God. And I'm not here to go into how that works out, or I would have an awful long message here, although I have shared it in other messages. I will say this, that love isn't continually in a state of growth and enlargement of creativity, but it was ultimately expressed in God choosing to have a corporate bride. And in that choice, the father loved... The son looks on the father and sees his glory and he's so filled with thankfulness because of the glory he sees. He's just filled with love unto the father because he sees this majesty of the holiness of God and his goodness that he says, Father, I want to love you so much more that I want to condescend and suffer great humiliation in order to bring you a corporate bride. And the father says to the son, Son, I love you so much that I want you to know the inheritance of your bride that you're bringing to me. So I'll let you go in order that there may be a great enlargement of creativity in our oneness. This is the one true God. You can only be a person each to govern in the time and space realm by being expressed into that time and space realm as a personage. You can only be a personage that sees the end from the beginning and is the originator by being a personage in that dimension. And so the Father in personage, the Son in personage, and the Holy Spirit filling all things, thus filling the ultimate aspects of all existence that issue from God, who is the ultimate good. And in this relationship, God is saying in John 17 that he also wants us to come into the same oneness that the Son has with the Father. He wants us to know such a relationship. And so when we see the goodness and the mercy of God to us, it should move us to be impelled by his love, to show mercy and goodness to those that cannot return it to us, that we would know the greatness of our reward in heaven. And in the next passage of Scripture, we have verses 15 to 24. The failure to be thankful to God by recognizing and honoring God as our life source and source of blessing by becoming focused on God's gifts and blessings to us over being focused on God. That is from verse 15 to 24. I don't need to repeat it. It's the story, not the story, the parable or illustration, I should say, rather, that Christ gave of those that were the servants of their master becoming so occupied with the blessings that they received from their master that they became focused on those blessings and became wrapped up with the blessings that were issuing from the master to the point that they lost their relationship of love with the source of those blessings, which was God. And so they failed to be thankful. And this is the very principle that starts the cycle of apostasy. 
And we see many examples of it shown in the scripture from the beginning to the end. We see the issue is basically that when there is ease and abundance and blessings, it often comes obviously out of great spiritual revival one or two generations before. And then by the second or the first generation after that revival, all of these blessings that God can entrust people with, but then they have all these blessings of sons and daughters, and they become so focused on the blessings that God's given that they fail to return those blessings and thankfulness unto God, their sons, their daughters, the gifts that they've received through seeking God in ministry become something that has allowed people to put them on a pedestal and they have failed to reprove those people or whatever the situation is. We have the example of the church in Ephesus that lost their first love. And again, I was given by the Lord an illustration many years ago that I use from time to time on the church of Ephesus, and it's because it's such a good illustration. That Ephesus was a city that was built in a very deep harbor, and that's why it prospered and had such great fruitfulness, because the harbor was deep. And when there is a genuine fear of God in our hearts and lives, there is a deep circumcision in our heart. There's not just a shallowness. There's a depth because we know the awe of his presence. It doesn't mean that we don't have liberty. It's that out of the humility before God, there comes a great outpouring of his grace that causes us to rise out of a depth of purity and love for God because we are reciprocating the purity of God and his holiness. And out of that comes depth and fruitfulness. But in Ephesus, what happened is that the trees that were in the surrounding hills were taken down and were not replaced. And this is symbolic, these trees of the blessings that God brings into our lives. And when they prosper and they flourish, God gives us the privilege to cut them down and to reap the benefits of those blessings of life from his presence. And so when that happens, we need to be so careful to break up the ground of our heart and thankfulness for his blessings by seeking God and not being occupied with the busyness of such blessings. It says of the nation of Israel, when they wax fat, Jeserim became proud. And of course, then it describes the apostasy that followed in God's judgment. But the root of it was that in prosperity, they became at ease. And out of that ease came pride. The word of God says that the sin of so Sodom and Gomorrah in Ezekiel was pride, abundance of bread, and ease. And in the church of Ephesus, what happened is they fell in to the trap of mere performance and lost out in relationship with God because they occupied themselves with the busyness of spiritual activity to justify also the other things that became significant to them, such as their ministry or whatever else. And so the trees were not replaced and the hills were eroding from the water. 
and there was a shallowness that began to develop in the harbor. People became light. It says of the false prophets they were light and treacherous persons. There was not depth anymore. There was not brokenness and and contrition before God. And the harbor became shallow. It became shallow. Over time, today that harbor is seven miles away from Ephesus, and it's not a harbor that can have ships or anything. And so Ephesus no longer prospered. It became dead and empty because it became shallow, because it failed to abide in the fear of God, to break up the fall of ground and continue in the ways of God. And so likewise, God will reject those that have made those things the focus of their lives and have failed to go out into the highways and byways and invite into his supper those that are in need and that we cannot, that cannot return favor to us and failed because they failed to be thankful before God. God is calling his church today to repent of those things that would allow these principles of apostasy to continue in the body of Christ. The first thing we need to repent of is failing to fear God. An example would be this, complaining because the church prayer meeting has a few people in it. Leadership of the church, if your prayer meeting has a few people in it, why in the world would you not make the church service itself a prayer meeting? Why in the world wouldn't you get down in your face and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God before your congregation and call them to get on their knees and to cry out mightily unto God out of humility and reverence for who he is? until the fall of ground is broken up in your hearts. That's the way you should always be starting a church service, not out of an instant sensitivity and a counterfeit joy. Genuine joy arises out of humility. Genuine liberty arises out of humility and the fear of God. I'm not suggesting that there's a set pattern, but I would say the general pattern in entering in to the presence of God is always to hallow his name first, for that is the way you enter into prayer, by hallowing the Father. And it is out of hallowing God and worship that there issues the true liberty and purity and the spirit of joy and prophecy. Because you're seeing out of that Deep turning in the heart, the the heart, the eyes of the heart are open to behold the glory of God. And when I talk about beholding the glory of God that comes out of the circumcision of the heart, it is this understanding that out of the holiness of God, out of this purity of love, we find wholeness and we perceive the wholeness that is in God that satisfies the void in our being with wholeness, because God alone is ultimately real. He is the solid rock of reality. He's the rock from whence living waters burst. And his part was broken for you, that the water of life might flow out of his side, that you could drink of the eternal life. 
And he says that whoever believes with their life into me out of their innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But let us never forget that he is the smitten rock from whence living waters flow. And he is calling us to break our hearts before him that the hardness and the fallow ground may be broken up, that he can bring the rain into our heart to bring forth the, the spices in his garden and the lilies in his garden that he can feed from so that we might be his holy corporate bride. So God is calling us as his people to repent of control, which is also to repent of denominationalism where we don't receive one another you know god leads me sometimes to be in a congregation then he leads me out i should have the liberty to go where the spirit's leading me to go if i'm mature before god and i know it's him that's leading me but i have done that and then i've gone to a church and they've been offended that i left and i can understand that but when they ignore you and they're not glad to see you, and they don't receive you in love. Your heart hurts, and I've been hurt, and I've been broken that way. But you know what? I didn't get offended. I said, God, thank you for having such mercy in me and showing me mercy. I didn't deserve it. I choose to bless my brothers and sisters. You know what happens when that happens? I just get baptized in his love. And I feel such love for my brothers and my sisters. It doesn't matter if they don't understand me. It matters that I love them because Christ loved me first and that I show mercy and goodness to them to conquer the spirit of denominationalism that holds back the unity of the fullness that God is jealous for in his bride before he comes and that he prayed for in John 17. And so he's calling us as his people to learn the secret of walking and the fear of God, that we would learn the secret of walking in the paths of humility and of grace and of being a channel of his mercy and of his goodness, to be his hand extended to our brothers and sisters so that we esteem our brothers and sisters better than ourselves, so that we delight to go and to wash their feet, even as Mary broke the alabaster box at the feet of Jesus. May we break our hearts before God first of all and then before one another. This will conquer the spirit of adultery, which is the pride of life, which is idleness and abundance of bread, which is manifested in the gods of amusement and so many things that plague the church in this day and hour, that God is calling his people to repent of. Why are they not redeeming the time? The word of God calls us to redeem the time. Our fulfillment is not found in emptiness of idleness. It is found in doing all things out of relationship of life with God that is filled with reciprocation of fellowship with one another as well so that we see through the hardness in one another and we learn to see the diamond cut in the rough and to wash one another's feet, so to speak, with the word of God. Paul the Apostle said to the early church that God has so tempered the body together that he has given more abundant honor unto the part that lacked that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. 
And when leadership repents of control and rather facilitates the members of the body to function and encourages them to function, to move in the gift of prophecy, to move in the gift of whatever their gifts are in the corporate assemblies, instead of control, then, as it says in that passage of Scripture, God can be allowed to give more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that those that tend to be looked up to in the natural are humbled and it's so that those that are more like a valley and are dejected because they're not so attractive are brought up. So that the mountains are brought down and the valleys are raised and the crooked places are made straight and the rough places smooth. So that no longer are people conscious of whether a person is dressed this way or this one has this gift or that gift. They're only conscious and hungry for one thing and that is the glory of God. And that we come together as living stones that can allow the habitation of God where he with all saints will, it says in the word of God, that we with all saints may be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And I am telling you that it's when that happens, when the fullness of the glory of God can be allowed to come into the midst of the assembly of the believers that out of that will come the greater works for the next verse in that passage of Scripture says that he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can ask or think according to his power that works in us. If we want to know the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, there must first come the restoration of all things and there must come this restoration in the body of Christ. May we be those that heed the call of the Spirit, as Christ is saying in this passage, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. May we be those that are filled with thankfulness. I don't know how long I've been preaching, but I will continue to preach and try to finish this passage of Scripture. But the next section is in verses... 25 to 35, the secret of conquering the failure to fear God and be thankful by recognizing God as the source of worth and thereby counting the cost that it is worth it all. Verses 25 to 35. And that is in this passage of scripture, basically the essence of what is involved. Christ is making it clear that the gifts that he's given us, whether it's our father or our mother or our wife or our children, in relation to our relationship with God, as it were, should be hated if they are becoming something that would violate our relationship with God or where the enemy would use one of them to say, well, I don't want you to do this. I want you to do this when God's saying to them, in fact, I want you to do this. Well, if we love God, in that case, we will, as it were, hate what they're saying because it is against God's will so that we truly will not allow the enemy to use those things that are precious to us to control our lives and lead us down a path of deception away from God. What is a disciple? It is someone that is a learner. It is someone, therefore, that is in a process of growth. 
and that is receptive to the teacher. And that receptivity comes out of a recognition of who our true life source is to the point that we would, as it were, hate those things that would stand in the way even though they are the very gifts of the most precious things that God has given to us. And God is calling his people to come out of the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we are to bear the cross. And it goes on to say in this passage that we are to bear our cross every day. We are to arm ourselves with a mind to suffer for the sake of God. For many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of all. them all. You only have to look at King David. He did not seek position. He did not seek glory. And yet, look at how he was persecuted because he sought the glory of God. In this passage, we're to count the cost. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's worth it all if we see who God is in our lives and choose to focus on who he is through a life of prayer that allows us to exercise an abiding out of the fear of God that brings revelation as to the joy that is set before us so that we are impelled to say it is worth it all to follow Christ because we see the treasure that is buried in the field. And we see that that is what is more important so that it is not hard in a certain sense to pay the price, to lose all, if need be, or to go through what Job went through and still worship God and praise him, knowing that he's able to take the greatest contradictions in our lives and bring that which is creative and resurrection out of it, if we persevere through it with thankfulness, without being tempted to go in a direction of rebellion against the holiness of God that is allowed the reverberating effects of rebellion against his holiness to come through Satan, through Adam and Eve, and through even our own past generations in judgments from God through being cut off which allows the curse of the enemy. But even those can be reversed if there is a first love relationship in our hearts, and we see that in the life of Ruth. She was a Moabitess, and it said the Moabitess, they weren't even to wish their prosperity or to seek it, and that they were not allowed into the house of the Lord until the tenth generation. And here this Moabitess comes, and Boaz seeks her prosperity, and blesses her, and she becomes the lineage through which King David and Christ come. How is that so? Because she said, your God shall be my God. And she forsook all of her false gods and all of her roots and her background and said, no, I'll leave all of that and I'll love God and I'll make him my focus. And because there was that, it broke the effect of the curse and the judgments that were upon her lineage for rebellion against God. 
And brothers and sisters, many of us, the reason we have generational curses in our lives is because there has not been a full deep work of circumcision and of repentance that will allow us to put the blood of Christ between our life and those judgments or those curses. But we can come to that place of applying the atoning work of Christ who, so that we can truly say that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. God is calling his people to repent. And in this passage of scripture, it ends in verses 34 and 35 by describing salt. The choice to abide in the truth and pay the price to speak and live the truth is salt. It hurts. It hurts people when they hear the truth. It hurts us when we hear the truth, but if we allow it, to be received even when it hurts. It will circumcise our hearts. And it will bring the satisfying taste that salt, salt brings of reality and relationship with God. We will sense the solid rock, immovable rock of his reality in our inner being that will preserve us and preserve others because we will pay the price to speak the truth to others even when it hurts and it says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So the secret to godliness, which is conformity to the love of God, which means that we hate what God hates and love what God's love loves, is to be abiding through the fear of God in a relationship out of the fear of God and humility and in thankfulness that is expressed in being willing to let go and let God have his way and speak the truth and not only be passive, but be offensive for the kingdom of God as salt. God bless you and thank you for listening to this passage of scripture until again, I look forward to ministering to you. Thank you.